Uh, I like to <clears throat> listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, usually in the car. Uh, sometimes when I mow the yard, whatever it is, I, I often, that's what I end up listening to a lot of times. This last week, I was listening to a podcast that was fascinating, uh, a guy named Stephen Meyer. He's a philosopher, he's a scientist. He was on uh, one of the biggest podcasts in the world to make the case for intelligent design. And it was interesting because it's not a podcast that usually goes into that area. And he was spending a lot of time giving proofs and reasons why there is a creator and there is a God behind everything and doing it really from science in a whole lot of ways. And it was really fascinating. And as I listened to it, it was encouraging in a lot of ways, but there were different times where it was frustrating because the guy interviewing him, not a believer, doesn't really agree with him on a whole lot of things. They were very cordial. They were very gracious to each other. It was never ugly. Uh, but there was different times where he would be explaining something and the guy would ask the question and you could tell they were just missing. Like he's not understanding what he's saying and he's not understanding him. And it's almost like they're talking past each other. And you could hear it as you're listening to it if you know some of the arguments he was making and the things he was saying. And it's kind of frustrating because they start to talk past each other over and over. If you think about it, this happens in your life pretty regularly, does it not? Uh, if, if you have children, it, it happens in your life all the time as you're, you're trying to explain something, particularly when they're little. Uh, I, I know we have a lot of uh, school teachers. You just went back to school, just starting. You know this to be true. Uh, you're trying to uh, maybe the beginning of the school year, you start teaching kids and they're supposed to know some things from last year and you're having to go back and check for understanding. And sometimes you're talking past and you're not syncing up. Uh, if you're married, that happens with your spouse at different times. Uh, you're saying one thing and they're saying something else and you're talking right past each other. Uh, even here is a sermon, right? I, I hope it's clear and I hope it's understandable. And sometimes maybe we're missing in different ways. Uh, Joanna, my wife's in the nursery today. And I know the question she'll ask after. She'll say, uh, how did it go? How was your sermon today? And I kind of jokingly say the same thing almost every week. I go, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> It's always clear to me, like, I don't know how everybody else heard it, or if they got it, or if we were talking past each other, but that happens a lot at different times, and whatever the situation is, we can do that, where we kind of talk past each other in different ways, and I was thinking about that podcast and the way I felt like they were so missing on different things, and that's really what's happening with Jesus and the crowds in his ministry. Uh, if you've been with us, this past month, we, we took a break on our ser- uh, the sermon series we've been in to answer some questions, and we did that for four weeks. We're back to our, our uh, overview of the Gospels, and we've been doing this for a year and a half almost now. And what we've been doing is working our way chronologically through the Gospels, and we're now to the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the text that Mike just read to you takes place on the Sunday before Jesus will be crucified on Friday morning. And so we're to the last week now. And in this, what you see at this, uh, this episode that we're going to look at today is that Jesus is saying and doing one thing and the crowd is expecting and doing something totally different and they're completely missing each other. And we've seen this all the way through the gospels as Jesus is teaching and preaching, even with his own disciples, even with those closest to him, he's showing them what he's about and what he's come to do and what it's looked like. And everyone else has a different conception of who the Messiah is. And we're going to see this come to probably the most clear head in our passage today, because the people around are seeing something totally different from what Jesus is saying and doing. And so the way that we're going to look at this text this morning is first, I just want us to consider the expectation of the crowd, why they're so missing it and what's going on here that's bringing kind of this this missing. And so their expectation 
and why they're missing it and the problems that that causes. And then secondly, I want us to see uh, what Jesus is doing. He's not missing it. He knows exactly what's going on. And everything he's doing here that we're going to see is he's seeking to bring correction. He's seeking to show them the reality of who he is and why he's here and what he's come to do. And so I want us to look at the crowd first and the way they see it and then look at what Jesus is doing. And then I want us to end this morning with this. I want us to consider how we're prone to be just like the crowd is and how we too need Jesus correcting us and coming alongside and showing us who he really is in all things. And so let's just start here with the expectation of the crowd, the problems that it leads to, the way that they're missing. Uh, before we jump into this passage, just as a bridge kind of back, it's been a few weeks since we've been in this series in the Gospels, and so I want to go back for just a second. One of the things that we've been saying from the very beginning all the way through this chronologically in the Gospels is that there's a very set expectation of what the Israelites, what the Jewish people thought the Messiah was going to be and what he's going to be like. And their expectations really revolved around that he would come and he would be a king and he would overthrow governments and he would restore Israel and they would rule and reign and everything would be great. And so they've been thinking that way all the way through. And we've been seeing that as we work our way all the way through the Gospels over and over. We pointed to different times where that's the case. Example, John chapter six, Jesus feeds the five thousand. Right. Does this miraculous work. And he feeds all these people. And it says in John chapter six and verse 15, he perceived the people were coming to take him and by force and to make him king. And what does Jesus do? He kind of sidesteps that and he gets out of there and he goes, he doesn't let that happen. You see him do this over and over where people have an expectation and they think this is going to happen in this way. And he kind of stiff arms them and he slides through and he goes away. Or even with his own disciples. It's not just the crowds. It's not just the people around, but it's even his own disciples. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, who do you, who are the crowds saying I am? And then who do you guys say I am? And in Matthew chapter 16 is where Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus turns and he says to Peter, he says, you're right. Blessed are you, Peter. The spirit has revealed this to you. Right. And, and he's, he's saying to him, yes, I am the Messiah. And now you've seen it. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, don't tell anyone. You go, what? And it's because their expectation of what the Messiah would be is not what Jesus is going to do. And so even with his own disciples, even when they're confessing it, he's going, no, 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 don't tell anybody. Don't say that. Don't go there yet. And so you see that kind of disconnect all the way through. But then all of a sudden we get here to this last week. And there's a fervor around Jesus and being the Messiah. And it's getting excited. You even hear it in some of the language. You're going to see it in our text today. They start to call out and call him son of David. If you remember a few weeks back, six weeks ago, we looked at the story of Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. In the town of Jericho as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he can't get to Jesus because he's blind and he doesn't have a way to get to him. And he's standing at the gate and he screams out, son of David, have mercy on me. And if you remember in that story, Jesus hears him and he says, bring him here and he heals him. And he doesn't say, be quiet with the son of David stuff. Right. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say that. He just heals him. And I was reading this week and a commentator was saying that, you know, in that moment when people start to call out son of David and he doesn't rebuke them and he doesn't say it, he was saying that the disciples, the hair on the back of their neck would stand up. They go, this is it. It's about to happen. 
right? He is the Messiah and this is it. And it's about to go down. He is the son of David. And that term starts to get thrown around and we're going to see it today in our text. And it's important for you to know that when they say that son of David, what that means, it's talking about the promised one that would come in the line of David. God gives a promise to King David a thousand years before. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, one of your descendants is going to come and he's going to rule on his throne forever. And so the people have been waiting for this king to come, the son of David. But it had this implication when you said son of David, that not only was he the Messiah, but he's going to be a king like David. He's going to rule and he's going to reign. And so that's where the political starts to get kind of intermixed with this promise that God's given. And so we see that in our, in our scene today. So that's just important background as we jump back in. Okay, so let's look at this passage together, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sits two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. And so he tells them to go and to get this donkey. Jesus is very deliberate. You're going to go get this colt and you're going to bring it to me. And he's setting all this up. And what Matthew points out to us is that he's doing this to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter nine. And this is a messianic prophecy, and Jesus is doing this explicitly for this reason. And so he tells them to do that. But then as Jesus comes into the town, look at the scene there as he comes into Jerusalem in verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and they cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so they start to call out son of David. Right. You see that there, son of David. And they're they're starting to use that phrase, Hosanna to son of David. And what that means, most literally, what they're saying is, save us, save us, O great king. And that's what they're calling out. And there's this this fervor that's starting to take place. And people are throwing branches on the ground. That was a sign of a great king. And they're throwing their coats on the ground. And they're putting all these things there. And Jesus is riding in. And there's like this, this fevered pitch as he's coming in. But here's the part that I want you to consider of how they're missing it. What's happening with the crowd that they're missing who Jesus is and why he's here and what he's doing. And so the first thing that I would say to you is they're missing it because they're they're looking at earthly means. They're looking at Jesus to be the king of Israel as the nation and to overthrow Rome. Now, there's a good reason why we've talked about this all the way through the series. Rome was rough, to say the least. The Israelites have been taken over by the Roman Empire. They're under their control. And it's an oppressive, brutal empire. Uh, I've said this all the way through our series. Right There there was peace in the time, the Pax Romana, it was known as. 
And the reason that there was peace during the time is that if you said anything against Rome, uh, they killed you. And so that's the way it worked, right? If you in any way were uh, rebelled, you got killed, and that's why there was peace. But the people were longing to be freed from the heavy hand of oppression from Rome. And so you can understand why they were thinking this way. God, save us, right? Save us, O king, O, o son of David, right? That's what they're saying. We need you. Deliver us. Help us in our time of need. But they're seeing it from just the earthly perspective. And so what you really have here is a political rally. That's, that's what's happening. I don't know if you've ever turned on the TV and we're about to have this, we're about to go into this this year. Uh, if you've ever watched like the Republican National Convention or the Democratic National Convention and everybody gathers together and here's our nominee, right? You watch it and each state stands up and goes, the great state of Nebraska and our votes go towards, right? And you know what they say? The next president of the United States and everybody cheers. That's what's happening here. Oh, save us, great king. Come, it's time. Let's overthrow Rome. Let's go. Let's get this on the road, right? They're so excited and they're pumped, but they're missing it because they're thinking in just purely earthly terms. Their focus is in the wrong place. They're not seeing the fullness of what God is seeking to do. And so I want you to go back to the very beginning where we started as we started to look through the gospels. And we saw John the Baptist come on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus. And he starts to preach, repent, the kingdom is at hand. And he starts to say to the people of Israel, you are not saved by being Israelites, right? Repent, you're to seek God and you're to love God and you're to love people. And you've made it about all this religious trappings and you've made it all about being Israel and you've made it about this nation and all these things. And John bursts on the scene and says, don't do that. That's, you're missing it. If you're making it all about the nation, you're missing it. He actually says in Luke chapter three, don't you dare say to me that Abraham's your father, right? He says, don't, don't make an appeal to your heritage. That's not the way this works. And he calls them to repentance and he's calling them to, to put their trust in who God is and the one that's coming. And John is preparing the way. And then you see Jesus come along behind him and he's doing the same thing. But the problem is they're missing it because they're missing what the problem is. And if you miss what the problem is, you're going to miss what the answer is. So I want you to think about that for a second. What is the problem that we have? Our biggest need is that we're sinners and we've been separated from a holy, righteous, perfect God. The problem is our sin and our rebellion against God. And so therefore the answer is Jesus and coming to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. But what had happened is they had made the problem Rome. The problem is we need a new king. The problem is we need better governance. And so when that happens, when you, when you identify something else as the problem, then you're going to suddenly get taken off of that real quickly. Alistair McGrath, if you know who Alistair McGrath is, he's a brilliant theologian. He's an apologist, a Christian apologist. He's a philosopher. McGrath says that whenever God is removed, we will transcendentalize something else in his place. I want you to think about what he's saying. If we miss what the problem is, that it's our sin and our need to be reconciled to God, we'll we'll define something else as the problem, but then we'll define something else as the answer. And so we do that in our culture all the time. We transcendentalize something else. And if you listen closely, you'll hear people all the time 
Today it has a lot to do with politics or who the next president is or those sorts of things. If we just get the right person, then everything will be okay. And that's exactly what they were doing here. And so the answer that they're seeking is a better king. And the way that we're going to do that is through power. We're going to take over and we're going to get rid of Rome and we're going to kick them out. And then we're going to install our king and we'll make it all about that. And then Israel will rise again and everything will be great. But the problem is, that's not what God's ever been doing. That's never been the story. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible and you start to work your way through, that's never the way in which God was working. So go back real quickly to the very beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man and he makes us in his image and he makes us to know God and to love God and to have a relationship with him. Genesis 3, we sin. We rebel against God and the world he created and we break that relationship. And right there in Genesis chapter 3, God comes to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden and he seeks them out and he tells them of their sin. He, he confronts them with it. He removes them from the garden, but he says what to Eve? He says, I am going to fix this. This serpent, his head is going to be crushed through the, the seed of, of, of you, Eve. There's one that's coming through you that's going to crush the serpent. And right there in Genesis 3, God makes the first promise of a savior. It's the proto-evangel, the first gospel, is right there in Genesis 3. Genesis 4 through 11, you see the spread of sin throughout all of the world and the evilness of it and the horrible ramifications of our ignoring God, showing us that the problem is our sin. And you see it 4 through 11. And then Genesis 12, God chooses a guy named Abram, who later will be named Abraham. And he says to Abram, I want you to go from this place and I'm going to give you a great number of descendants and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then he says, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That seed that he promised to Eve in Genesis 3, talking about Jesus. And so right there you have the beginning or the Genesis of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, his son Isaac, his son Jacob. Jacob's name gets turned to Israel. And then they grow out of those people. And God does exactly what he says. He gives them millions of people. From one man comes millions and millions. He gives them a land. You see that in Joshua and he fulfills what he's going to say. What he says he would do. He gives them the land in Joshua. He makes them into a great nation. Under David and then his son Solomon, they become the greatest nation in the history of the world. But then all that's left of that promise is the seed that's to come that's going to bring everything and set it right. And that is Jesus. And he has just walked into Jerusalem. But the problem here is instead of seeing that the nation is pointing to who God is and what he's like and showing what he's like to show Jesus when he shows up, right? That's God's plan with Israel to show the world what he's like, to prepare the way for Jesus and then to point to him. And then what happens? They get so excited that here he is and here's the Messiah, but they've missed it. They want the seed to come to restore the nation so the nation can be the one that's in control of everything. And they've missed the whole point. It was never about Israel as a nation. It was always ever about Jesus, always. And here they're missing it and they're making it about Rome and overthrowing governments. And so that's the first way they're missing it. But then the second way they miss it is if that's true, if Rome's the problem and overtaking nations is the answer and Israel's gonna be in in charge and that's the way in which this goes, then what happens is salvation comes through power. Salvation comes by overthrowing governments. 
Salvation comes by ruling and reigning and telling people what to do. But the Bible says that's not true. I read years ago a book by theologian Greg Boyd, and I love the way he said it. Uh, he says you have two ways. By the way, I said Greg Boyd. I don't like to drop names like that. I disagree with Greg Boyd about a whole lot of things. So if you know who Greg Boyd is, I think he's a believer. I think he loves the Lord. I think this particular book was really great. But I just say that. So if you go, oh, JP said Greg Boyd, I'm going to go read all his stuff. Be careful. There's some things he says that maybe don't spend a whole lot of time on. But Greg Boyd does such a good job of putting this one area of saying that the world works through power over but the kingdom of God works through power under. That Jesus comes to show us what it looks like to serve and to love others and to offer grace. And then he does it by becoming a servant, that it's power under, but the world works through power over. And so what you have here is the people wanting to take Jesus by force and make him king so we can have power over Rome and put them in their place. And Jesus is not doing that because that's not the way the gospel works. The gospel works through power under, not power over. And so Jesus comes and he does this all the way through his ministry. Everybody's trying to take him by force and make him king. And he's going, no. Right. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. He calls all those people together and they're all excited. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he flips all of it. He says, it's not power over. It's power under. And this is what it looks like to follow God and to see who he is and what he's doing for us in Jesus. Think of all the things that Jesus says that we've looked at through the last year and a half. He says, if, if anyone asks you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Right? You know the context of that. We looked at this a while back. But in the Roman Empire, if the oppressive government of the Roman Empire came and a soldier took his pack off and handed it to you and said, here, carry this, you had to carry it for a mile. And Jesus doesn't say, throw that pack down and tell them we're not under Rome. What does he say? He says, if they ask you to carry it one mile, carry it two. The gospel's the complete opposite of the way the world works, of power over, it's power under. And he's saying this all the way through. You get to Luke chapter 9. And they're going through a town in Samaria, and the people don't receive them. And James and John go to Jesus and they go, do you want us to call down uh, fire from the heavens and do away with these people? Jesus goes, no. What are you doing? No. He rebukes them. And he says, that's not the way this works. That's not what my kingdom is like. And so you're seeing this total disconnect that they want to come in and overthrow Rome by power over. And Jesus is going, that's not the way this works. It's power under. But then the third way that I would say to you that they're missing it. So they're missing it by making it temporal kingdoms. They're missing it by saying it's going to come through power over others. But then the third way they're missing it is they're making it exclusive. They're making it to their heritage. They're making it all about Israel and no one else. And so what you see in verses 12 and 13, Jesus looked there. It says Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, if that sounds familiar, it is in the sense of Jesus has done this before. I believe he does this twice. I think he does this at the beginning of his ministry. We see that in John, right at the beginning of John. 
Uh, we see it here in the synoptic gospels at the end of his ministry. There would have been a couple years between those times. And so there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't have continued that practice. And so for Jesus to do it a second time, I think that makes sense. But he goes in there and he's angry just as he was when we saw in John way back at the beginning of his ministry. Because what they're doing is they've set up shop in the outer courtyard. And so the outer courtyard of the temple was the place in which the only place in which Gentiles could go. Right. They were only allowed in the outer courtyard because they were ceremonially unclean. And so that's the only place they could go. And so when he goes into this outer courtyard, where it's supposed to be a place for all to come in and to be able to worship God and come near. And they can't because of all this stuff's going on. There's all this commerce and they're buying and selling and all this craziness that takes place. Jesus, Jesus gets furious and he overturns their tables and he drives them out in Mark's gospel in chapter 11. It says the exact same thing. It tells of the same story, but he adds one little part that Jesus says here. It says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. In Mark's gospel, it says he says that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you make it a den of robbers. And I think what Jesus is frustrated with as he comes in is Israel has become all about Israel. And we're going to overthrow and we're going to be the nation and we're going to rule and reign over Rome. And it's going to be all about us. It's the same thing John the Baptist was correcting. It's not all about Israel. That was never the plan. God gave his his doing through Israel so they would show the world what he's like. And they've made it all about us. And Jesus is furious. And he says, that's not the way this works. And he goes in and he drives them out. And so they're missing it by making it about earthly kingdoms. They're making it about power over and they're making it exclusive. It's just about us. And Jesus is going, no, it's not. And so I want you to see how he's correcting all of those. You know, I talked at the beginning about how we sometimes miss in our conversations. We can talk past each other. And sometimes the worst of times we talk past each other and we don't realize it. I think I'm being clear and you think you're being clear and we're totally missing each other. The people are missing what Jesus is doing, but Jesus isn't missing any of it. He knows exactly what's happening. He's completely in charge and he's showing them what he's really like. And so I want you to look again at these same things, but what Jesus is doing here. And so he rides in to Jerusalem to cheers and excitement, this political rally. But how does he do it? He sends his disciples ahead and he gets them to bring them this this uh, donkey that he sits on and he rides in in this way. And he's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, but he's also doing something very subversive in the way he's coming in. They're expecting a great king to come in and lead a revolution. They're throwing down the branches. They're calling out, save us, great king. They're so excited. In fact, this picture, if you know history, mimics almost exactly the way Simon the Maccabee came into Jerusalem about 200 years before. Simon the Maccabee led a revolution in Jerusalem. And he said, follow me. And he came in with his sword drawn on the back of a stallion. And he comes in and says, follow me. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't come in on the back of a stallion. He comes in on a lowly donkey. And what he's doing is he's correcting their misunderstanding with basically a a living parable here. He's saying, I'm not a king in the way you think I'm a king. I'm not a king that's here to overthrow governments. I'm the servant king that's come to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so he sits on this donkey and he rides in in this way. And so I want you to think about this picture here for a second. If it was overthrowing governments, 
If it was all about getting rid of Rome and let's go and it's time for revolution, what happens to the guy who rides in sitting on a donkey? He gets slaughtered real quick, right? If this is a revolution to overthrow a government, you better be on the back of a stallion or you better be on foot with your sword drawn and ready to go. You ride in on a donkey, you're sitting duck. It's not going to take long before you're going to be the first one that gets killed. And so what Jesus is doing is he rides in, is he's showing, he's correcting their misunderstanding. He's riding in on the back of a donkey as the humble servant. And he's coming in to let the world and the sin of the world and the death that comes with it and all of those things to do their worst to him so that we can be freed. And when people are thinking it's all about Rome and we need a new government and Jesus is going, oh, you need way more than that. You need your sin to be dealt with. And so he rides in as the humble servant, knowing that he's coming into this place to lay his life down. And he's not going to be used and he's not going to be put in their categories. And so he does. And he comes in on the back of a donkey. And then he goes into the temple and he overthrows the stuff and he drives them out. And he says, you're making my house, God's house. Notice what he's saying there. Who can come into the house and rearrange the furniture? The owner, right? That's the only way that works. That's the person that gets to do that. And so Jesus walks in and calls it his house. And this this is God's house. And I'm the one that's telling you and get out. And what he's doing is he goes in there and he says that you've made it a house of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. He's showing them. He's again showing them what this is, what he's all about and what he's come to do. That he's come to lay down his life for all those, all nations that would put their faith in him. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for a certain people. He's coming in and he's turning up. He's he's flipping everything upside down from the way they think of it. Or really, if we stop and think about it, since Jesus is the one seeing it rightly, he's turning everything right side up. And he's setting it to the way it's supposed to be. And so he goes into the temple and he overthrows those things and he starts to do that. But then there's one last thing he does here, and I'll put this together. Verse 18, it says, The next morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. And you go, well, that's kind of weird. What's that about Jesus cursing trees and upset that there's no figs? But I think what he's doing, when you take the context of everything that's happened and the way he's coming in and the ways they're missing it, the ways that they're not seeing what he's doing and the way it's working, I think, again, it's another living parable. And he goes to the fig tree, Jeremiah chapter 24. There's a a prophecy and an image there as God's speaking, and he uses Israel as the figs. And I think what Jesus is saying is he comes to that tree and he looks at it and he sees that there's nothing on it. He's going, here's Israel that's supposed to be a light to the world to show what God's like, and they're completely missing it. They're missing the truth of who God is. And so when he goes to the tree that's blossoming, and it should have fruit on it, and there's no fruit, it's an image of Israel. They're supposed to be showing the world what God's like, and they're not. And he goes to that tree, and he looks, and there's nothing there, and then he curses it, and he says, no fruit will come from you anymore. What's about to happen in this last week of Jesus' life? He's going to lay down his life. He's going to die in our place. 
He's going to take on the sin of the world, bear the wrath of God. He's going to die. He's going to be gloriously resurrected again. And when he does, what happens to the temple? It's obsolete. The veil is torn in two from that separates the holy of holies from the outer courtyards. The, the inner sanctum where God's dwell, glory dwells is no more there. Right? You read through in the book of Hebrews and it tells you this in great detail. Jesus said this in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And it says he was talking about his body and what he was going to do. And so when he goes to that fig tree and he curses it and he says, this is no more, no more fruit. What he's saying is it's no more Israel is the image of God to the world. It is now the church. And God's going to show that throughout all of what he's doing. And so when he lays down his life and he restores us to relationship by grace through faith and what he's done and he opens that way back up, it's totally different now. And he's showing them that even just in what he's doing. He's correcting all their misunderstandings about what is to come and the way it's going to happen. And so everything he does here is full of meaning. Now, I don't think they see it. I don't think even Jesus' disciples saw all this until after the resurrection. And as he started to teach them and show them, they're missing a huge part of it. They say, okay, well, that's great. They're missing it. Jesus isn't. We get to that. What does that have to do with us? You go, okay, I wasn't there. I didn't miss it. I I, kind of get the big idea. What does that have to do with us? And I would just say to you that in different times, we face the exact same temptation. We do the same thing. We take who God is and the way he's moving and the way he's working, and we try to use him for our own purposes. Right? That's what they were doing. We're going to install him as king, and we're going to overthrow governments, and then everything will be all right. We do the same thing. At different times in our own lives, we seek to use Jesus for our own means. Or we take what the way the world works, this power over, and we try to take Jesus and kind of insert it into that and operate in the same ways. And so think about it. We do this uh, politically. Like in our country today, everybody is so divided and everybody's jockeying for power. And if we just get the right guy in power, then everything will be okay. And as believers, we get sucked into that and we start to believe the lie that it's power over that's going to fix all those things. And oftentimes what we do is we abdicate our responsibility to be light and salt in the world and look just like God does. And we start to look just like the world does. But I'm not making that just about political. We do that interpersonally in our own lives all the time, do we not? How often do you get frustrated with somebody and they're not doing what you want them to do? So you try to do power over. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do in the way I want you to do it. And we start to operate in the same way in our relationships with one another. And we start to focus those ways. And we start to talk like that. And we start to treat each other in those ways. And we're good at making excuses of why that's okay. Well, they deserved it. And I couldn't get through to them. And we start to make all these excuses. And we do the very opposite of who Jesus is. So who is he? Who are we in him? He's the humble servant who comes sitting on the back of the donkey. He comes to lay down his life for us. See, the very heart of the gospel. I read it this way this week, and I thought it was really good the way it said. In our sin, we're the servants that put ourselves in place of the king. Right? We try to use him for our purposes. We try to tell God the way things are and the way he has to work. We say that all the time. 
Right? Well, the Bible says that, but I'm not sure that's going to work. What we're saying is, God, you don't really know what you're talking about, and I'm going to take control here. And so we, in our sin, the servants that should be serving the king, put ourselves in his place. And so what does Jesus do? Salvation is the king who puts himself in the place of a servant on our behalf. And he comes and he says, you've blown it. And so often you've put yourself in my place and you've made it all about yourself. And so what does Jesus do? He says, I will come and I will assume the place of a servant and I will do for you what you haven't done for yourself. I will lay down my life for you. I will show you what it looks like. And he shows us that change comes, hearts are changed when we experience the grace of God and what he's done for us in Jesus. It's the only way it works. The older I get, the more I am convinced of this thing. That the way heart change comes is by grace. It doesn't work any other way. And how easy it is for us to do exactly what they were doing with Jesus. And go, no, 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 it's power over. And we need to get in control and we need to do this. And Jesus is there going, no, it's not. I have come to lay down my life for you. And when you see that, and when you know that, and when you experience the grace of God in your life, he melts your heart. He changes you. He changes you from the inside out as you experience his grace. We are called to do the same. Just like Israel was called to be light in the world to show what God's like, we now as the church are called to show what God is like. We're to die to ourselves and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and come underneath and meet people where they are and listen to them and share the truth of who Jesus is. And it doesn't work any other way. And what Jesus is showing here, I know that all those pieces and all the, that's what he's getting at. That's the heart of all of it. That we desperately need him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then we get the opportunity to show others the same. And so please don't hear what Jesus is saying here and go, yeah, 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 all that and all those, all those pieces and they missed it. We miss it too. And we desperately need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He's done what we could never do for us. And so we too are called to be servants in the way that he's a servant. To love others in the way that he's loved us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you so love us that you've come to do for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. We pray that you would help us to see that afresh today. I pray for each person here as we experience all the things in our world that are so completely out of step. How easy it is to get sucked in to the way the world functions. Would you give us hearts that are softened by the truth of the gospel? Would you help us to see that we are called to love others in the ways that you have loved us? Give us eyes to see you afresh today. We pray that we would truly love others as you've loved us in all things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.